One of the intentions, the key intentions of the Protestant Reformation back in the day was not to go in new directions, but actually to go backward to what the church believed at the beginning and what many of the the ancient church fathers believed. When uh, Luther nailed the the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, that was an awful lot to try to remember. Um, So they kind of boiled it down to Five. I don't think that's why they boiled it down to five. But there's sort of five hallmarks, five teachings that represent the core of the Reformation. And they are in Latin, which, who doesn't love Latin? How many took Latin in high school? Okay. Um, yeah, not a lot. But anyway, you, you got to love the Latin. And, uh, and I'm, I'm going to give you the Latin. Now, if you listen, they're all got, they've got English-sounding you know, equivalents. So see if you can point, pick them out, and then I'll give you the English, Okay. So there is sola fide, fide, sounds like fidelity, Uh, sola scriptura, yeah, solus Christus, how many feel like you got all three so far figured out? The next one, sola gratia, gratia, however you pronounce it, my Latin pronunciation is awful, and soli deo gloria. Got all five? In, so in English they are salvation is by faith alone, through scripture alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And you say, well, what's that got to do with Acts? We're in Acts chapter 15 and I could actually take that passage and, and kind of crowbar all five in there. But I don't have to do any crowbar work at all for three of them. And I didn't come at it going, oh, I need to do a five solas sermon or something like that. I was reading it going, oh my goodness, there's three of the solas here that are just very, very strong and represent where the ancient church was. They had a council. They decided some of this stuff. And and though they didn't express it in this way, I believe that you will see this here very clearly today. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have gotten back from their first missionary journey. Do you remember that whole thing? I won't recap it for you except to say it was among the Gentiles, specifically and mostly in the region called Galatia. They get back to their home church, their sending church, which was, if you recall, Syrian Antioch. And when they get there, they're confronted because some people come along and they are they're Christians, but they are Jewish Christians from a Pharisaical background, and they're very, very worried about circumcision and the, the lack thereof when it came to the Gentiles. And so it says in verse 15, 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Just want you to dwell there for a moment because I want you to see the heart of where we are going. The question is, How can you be saved? What is that which is efficacious, effective, produces salvation? And you have these people saying, it's not just sola fide, by faith alone. It is that plus circumcision. And then they add, they tack on a little bit more. When you get to verse 5, they say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. In other words, justification, being declared righteous, being cleansed from sin, being forgiven, redemption, all of these things attached to our salvation, they would say is Jesus plus. 
Faith in Jesus plus. It's plus this. It's plus that. It's plus circumcision. It's plus uh, doing the works of the law. And down through the centuries, this is something that the church has unfortunately wrestled with. And there's always going to be someone who comes along saying, yes, faith in Christ is all well and good, but to that you must add thus and so in order to be saved. And here's the big idea today. You'll see the three solos in the, in the main idea. God saves us by his grace alone in Christ alone through faith alone. And I believe that is the ancient teaching of the church. That is the teaching of the scripture. And I'm going to give you three big church, you know, powerhouse men that, that agree with me here. For, so first of all, so says Paul. So says Paul. You probably want to keep your Bibles open. I don't know if you noticed, but it took about half the service just to read that whole passage. That was a, that was a long passage, is a long passage. I'm not going to throw everything up there on the screen for you, but um, in verse 2, it tells us that in response to this circumcision group and their call for adding circumcision, there was no little debate and dissension. Paul is there. Paul is putting up a fight. He and Barnabas are going toe-to-toe, and they're arguing this. So we know that the one group says it's faith plus circumcision. It's faith plus circumcision in the works of the law. And, and Paul is in there arguing against that. Given the controversy, the church decides, let's, uh, let's not try to settle this here in Antioch. Really, we should go to Jerusalem because that's where the, the, the core of the apostles are. We'll send it back there, you know, to send it to Washington, D.C., uh, get, get kind of a ruling here from the Supreme Court. While on his way there, being sent there, Paul does something that I think is just downright unfair. Have you ever noticed that Paul is a little sneaky at times? He is. He's a wily little guy. I mean, there's, he's always doing something just a little to, you know, to make things come out the way he wants them to come out. He's willing to, he's willing to sort of bend around a little bit. And here he goes back uh, as he's going to Jerusalem. He just happens to pass through Phoenicia and Samaria and while he's going through there, he's talking to the churches the whole way going, hey, I got to tell you what God did among the Gentiles. So he's politicking a little bit, isn't he? Is it just me or do, am I the only one that sees that? Not that it matters that much, but I think Paul is just, he's just very bold. He's just a bulldog with a bone. He's always really bold. And so um, once they get there, it's Peter that's going to take the floor and actually vocalize, actually bring this teaching into uh, clarity. But after, after Peter speaks, Paul comes back into the narrative again in verse uh, 12. Verse 12, it says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they, they bring Paul forward at that point, but notice he's not speaking theologically there. He's talking about what God's done. So Luke has done something interesting here. He, he clearly is showing us that Paul is against that view of, of bringing in circumcision, but, but he has the words, the teaching part, in the mouth of Peter, not in the mouth of Paul, which is quite interesting if you think about it. You're like, well, did Paul not have well-developed thoughts about the role of circumcision and the law vis-a-vis salvation? Well, of course not. Paul was uh, very clear on it. If you want Paul's theology on this very point, it's called the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is written to the churches that were planted during the first missionary journey in Galatia. 
and they believe that the book of Galatians was written sometime between Paul and Barnabas returning to Syrian Antioch and the Jerusalem council. So somewhere in there, Paul writes the letter. And he is very worried about adding anything to faith, including circumcision. And he talks about it. He talks about how even Peter was for a moment kind of deceived. He'd gone to Antioch, and while he's in Antioch, the circumcision group is there. And so Peter kind of just a little cowardly pulls back from meeting with the Gentile Christians, from having uh, table fellowship because they're uncircumcised. And this is what Paul says in the book of Galatians. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, we're talking about the truth of the gospel here. I said to Cephas, that's another name for, for Peter, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Boy, I bet that went over well. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but how? But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Are you getting the teaching there pretty clearly? If you ever want to understand the book of Romans, read the book of Galatians. Galatians is like the cliff notes to the book of Romans. What I want to say to you today is the reformers, when they came along, they did not invent sola fide. If you go home today, say, ah, Pastor Jay was on a tear about the Reformation and all of that, and I don't know why he was getting into that sort of thing. And caught, Look, it's just, it's, I, I came here because of the text. It is the teaching that, that, that salvation has to be by faith alone, through grace alone. It, it can be no other way. That is the teaching of the Scripture. It can't be any other way. Uh, let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, it's from Evangelism Explosion. How many have done Evangelism Explosion? It, no? Okay, that was really big 30 years ago. Um, anyway, it's probably not copyrighted material anymore, so I can do, do this, but I, I'm just ripping them off is what I'm trying to say, so... Lest you say I plagiarized. I told you I plagiarized. Um, so here's the illustration that you use in, in doing evangelism. You say to the person who's just kind of trusting in, it, they say they're trusting Christ, but they're also trusting their good works. You say, well, imagine this chasm between you and God. You, the sinner, the unredeemed sinner, you're standing on one side of this great chasm and God, eternal life, everything's on the other side. And between you, there is this enormous chasm of, of molten lava and sharks and crocodiles and spears sticking up and razor blades. I don't know, just make it as bad as you want to think about it. But that sort of like represents damnation. And, and, and how are you going to come to God? How are you going to come to eternal life? And then you say, well, now imagine there's a rope and it's attached to Christ in like a fulcrum point above and it's one of these big old gym ropes. How many had, had to go up gym ropes when you're like, yeah, you have to be pretty old because it got, you know, too many kids hit their head and bled all over the place and they went, let's not do this anymore. Back in the 60s though, we climbed up, we fell, we bled, they just wiped it off and sent another one up. It didn't matter. That's how it ought to be. Okay, so you got a rope like that. And it's this 10,000-pound test rope, and it's like, okay, try to swing to the other side. How confident do you feel? Well, that rope is really good. That's faith, okay? That's the, that represents faith in Christ. But the person who says, oh, I trust in faith, but I also trust in my good works. Well, that's like if you took that long rope, 
And then you took a little thread, the kind that you put your buttons on with, and you, and you just put a little section of that. It could be in the middle or at the end, doesn't really matter. But as some part of what you're trusting in, you've got that little thread. Now are you going to swing on that rope? And you can try, but it's going to be a disastrous ending. It has to be. It is by grace through faith alone, through Christ alone. And there, there's really no other biblical teaching on this. So says Peter. So says Peter. Peter was humble. He seems to have gotten the word. I mean, he allowed Paul to rebuke him. There's no indication that, that he bristled at that or that he fought back. And now in the in-between time, it seems like he's really resolute. He understands what's going on here. We have the apostles gathered together. Verse 6, this is often referred to as the Jerusalem Council or the first council of the church ever. And according to verse 7, um, there had already been quite a bit of dissension. That's where I think Paul was talking. Why, why Luke doesn't record it, I don't know. Maybe he said he's got the whole book of Galatians. I don't need to give him any more airtime here. But um, we don't have anything of what, what he said. But then Peter gets up to speak. And the first thing that Peter does is he reminds them that he was the guy, the guy, you know, that used the keys of the kingdom to open up the door, the, the door to the Gentiles. It was that thing with Cornelius. How many remember the story with Cornelius that we covered? And there was the whole vision in Joppa where he saw the sailcloth coming down and all the unclean animals and God saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he just fought and fought and fought against that. You'll remember his whole defense of that, which he's already had to defend back in chapter 11, was, hey, God made me do it. I didn't want to. God was, God was the one pushing throughout that whole thing. He says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Note with emphasis here. How does Peter characterize this? That they should hear the word of the gospel. What's the gospel? That Christ Jesus came into the world, that he died for sinners, he was buried, he rose the third day, that they should hear the gospel and believe. Faith, that they might believe now now the simple statement is yeah hear and believe um, God prevailed God prevailed look at verse 8 through 9 and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and he made no distinction between them having cleansed their heart by faith what's Peter saying here He's saying that uncircumcised Gentiles, uncircumcised, apart from the works of the law, apart from circumcision, received the Holy Spirit in that condition. They didn't need to be first circumcised to receive the Holy Spirit and be saved. They didn't need to have followed any work of the law. They brought no righteousness to the table whatsoever. They heard the gospel. They believed they were sealed by the Holy Spirit. They received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were saved. How? By faith alone, by belief. And this gets worse. Peter says that God made no distinction between them and the Jewish believers. Now that didn't go over well with certain people. I can tell you that right now. Those who were arguing for the value of circumcision you can bet your bottom dollar that they didn't see even those Jews, would, those Gentiles that might have been circumcised and followed some 
aspects of the Jewish law, you can, they would have still seen a distinction between them even after that fact. And Peter says God made no distinction between them. And then Peter comes right out and argues against forcing them to do any of these things. It says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that not, neither our fathers nor we had been able to bear? Peter's just crossing a line now with, with some of these people. All, all, because now he's arguing that the law is not a means of salvation for anyone. He's saying what Paul says in the book of Romans, that, that, that the law is incapable of saving. It doesn't even matter if you're Jewish. You could be the best Pharisee of Pharisees. You could be the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, pre-conversion. You could be that good, but the law is not going to do it. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He said, there is no difference here between Jew or Greek. Salvation, not through the law, not by circumcision, not by what you've done. It is by grace. And here he says, through faith. It's, it, I mean, it, it, um, sorry, by, by faith, through grace. So he brings that sola gratia in there as, as well. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish. Now, we know there are distinctions between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. There are genetic differences and so forth. I can't remember. I guess it was Whoopi Goldberg recently that got in trouble by saying being Jewish is not a, about a race. It, I mean, it is. There are, there are DNA distinctions there. I remember when I had my DNA done, I was so hoping that I was going to be part Jewish. Does that sound weird? Yeah, it sounds weird. I was just, I was digging on that idea that, oh yeah, because in my family background, it, there's the there's surname back about four generations, there's a surname Judah. And I thought, Judah, well, there you go. You know, I gotta be Jewish. Turned out it was just some dumb Swiss name that got mangled when it came to America. Not, I, not, I don't even have like a little, little, little hint of it there. But despite my disappointment, there is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to be justified. It is through faith in Jesus Christ from beginning to end, sola fide. And as Peter says, it is sola gratia. It is by grace alone. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't bring anything to the table. Jew or Gentile alike, both are indistinguishable in their absolute need of the gospel in their need of the blood of Christ. And I think as, as Peter said this, there was probably just like an audible gasp from the crowd, and it says they fell silent. You know, I know some of you really are into um, some of the Jewish rituals and, and, and festivities and, and, I, and linking that with our Christian faith. I don't think there's any harm in that sort of thing. I think if, that's, if, if, if that, it, it gives you some insight into the scriptures, that's great. If you're, some of you eat kosher and you're really, you're, you're really off on that, uh, you know, kick and, and I don't care. Great. If, if that makes you feel healthier and, and, you know, there were obviously health reasons that those things came into being, more power to you. But what Peter and Paul agree on, and this is something we must agree on as Christians, is that none of that, none of any of those things attached to the law are capable of adding anything to our salvation or in any way providing any aspect of our salvation. It has to be by faith alone. It is faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Yeah? I think we all agree on that. 
hopefully. Thirdly, so says James. James, not the Apostle James, by the way. What's, what happened to the Apostle James, the one of the 12? Herod got in the way, didn't he? He was the first of the 12 to be martyred. So that guy's out of the way. This is, this is the Lord's brother. You remember his brothers and sisters that didn't believe in him? <laughs> After the resurrection, they're like, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I guess I will believe in that guy, come to think about it. And, and James, his brother, becomes a huge leader in the early church. And first thing he does is he kind of sums up what, what Peter's been talking about and particularly how God had used him. He calls him Simeon, which is the very Hebrew way of referring to Simon Peter. So we've seen Simon Peter, Cephas, he, he got called a lot of different things. But um, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now that is a really, really, uh, just look at it for a moment and see if you see how radical just that intro is on the part of James. Because there are two things that he says there that are very, very, well the Jews would have seen them as just for them. Like that idea of the visitation of God. God visited Israel. Remember when Israel was under the yoke of slavery in Egypt, God visited them. But now it's these visiting the Gentiles, taking from them a people for his name. That would have been exclusively understood by the Jewish people as their territory and their territory alone. This is radical stuff. It reminds me of something that Peter says, which is also very radical. You read it in the New Testament, you don't even know how radical it actually is. But in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, but you are a chosen race. Now, who's Peter speaking to here, by the way? You have to know that to put the pieces together. He's writing to all the churches of Asia Minor and maybe beyond even, made up entirely of Jews and Gentiles, <laughs> both. So he's writing to all of them, the collective people of God in the gospel, and he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter has taken stuff from the Old Testament from the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy, that were spoken specifically to Israel. And he's saying that in Christ, through the gospel, the church is the people of God. This is not to say that God has no plan or something for his Old Testament people. I'm not saying that. Don't hear me that way. But I'm saying that, that, that Peter and James are very radical in their understanding that the church is the people of God. James is saying um, God now has a chosen people that includes the Gentiles. And he backs it up here with, with liberal quoting from the Old Testament prophets, from people like Amos and Isaiah. He says, and with the words of the prophet, I'm sorry, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tents of David that have fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Now, so what's James saying? He's taking these Old Testament prophecies and he's saying, first of all, God promised that he would raise up the ruin of David. David, the king, was to have someone sitting on his throne for all days. But there was that interruption. You had the Babylonian captivity and all the rest. And so the prophets are looking to that restored temp, that restored tent of David, meaning the Christ. And James is saying, my brother, 
half-brother. Uh, Jesus, he's the guy. He's come. That temple, that, that tent, I keep wanting to say temple, that tent has been restored. In that day, he says God is, has, had promised that he was going to raise a people called by his name, of all things, from the Gentiles. And, and James is saying, and God wasn't promising this. I mean, this is the inference you have to take. He didn't say that the Gentiles in the final days of the days when that temp, tent was restored to David, that, that somehow God was going to first make them Jewish and then get them saved. The implication is of the Gentiles, there would come a remnant, a people called by God's name. Sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus. All right, now. Then James muddies the water. It was probably actually really clarifying to the group that he was speaking to, but for us, so many hundreds and thousands of years later, we look at it, and you read this, I'm sure you've read it a time or two and been confused. So I'm going to hopefully clarify the muddied water here just a little bit. But he says this, he says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James does not in any way compromise the gospel. I want you to understand that. There's no sense in which he is setting aside what he has just Said or what Peter or what Paul have just said. He's not compromising that. In verse 19, he specifically says he doesn't want to trouble the Gentiles. But what he's also doing, he doesn't come out and say it, but with this ruling, he's saying, I also don't want to uh, burden the Jews, the Jewish Christians. I don't want to put a stumbling block in front of the Gentiles. I'm, I'm not really wanting to put a stumbling block, though, in front of my Jewish Brothers, what is it with this, 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 this list here? Um, all of these practices, or I, first I should say, none of these practices are in any way suggested as ways of being saved. It's not like James is saying, okay, you've got salvation by faith alone, but I'm just going to add a few weird little, little tricks here. No, that would, that would make absolutely no sense uh, whatsoever. But here, l- look again at what he's saying. This is the ruling, and we'll explain it. He says, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, this looks to us like a hodgepodge kind of list. Like if you were going to tell people, look, you know, you're saved by grace through faith alone, but you know, I'd really like you to pay attention to at least some of the commandments. Which ones would you throw in at that point? I mean, I think I'd go with the 10, wouldn't you? I'd say, don't murder, you know, it's a, trust in Christ, but please don't murder. Uh, please respect your parents, don't steal. I'd be throwing those things in there. Why this, why this list? Well, again, he's not saying this is how you are to be saved in any way, shape, or form. What he's talking here about are Jewish taboos. Uh, there were aspects of the law, particularly aspects of the ceremonial law that are being talked about. And there were things that would have absolutely driven Jewish people nuts. Like you can't do this around them or they're not going to hear the gospel that you're preaching to them. And even those that have become Christians, there's just no getting this out of their head. What are these things? They all relate to that sort of thing. The first thing is anything associated with idolatry. 
anything associated with idolatry. Of course, idolatry is off the table. But he's like, he's more or less saying, like, when you're with Jewish people, don't tell them that you just went down to the festival of Artemis and picked up an elephant ear, you know, at, at one of the vendors. They're not going to want to hear that. Don't, don't do stuff like that. That's going to set them off. The sexual immorality thing, you're like, well, shouldn't we, isn't that self-explanatory that we should stay away from sexual immorality? The kind of sexual sexual immorality that he's probably talking about here, we would refer to as the laws of consanguinity. There's your Scrabble word for the day. Consanguinity. Laws of consanguinity. We have those laws in the United States. Laws of consanguinity. Con, with, right? Sanguine has to do with the blood. So you're not supposed to marry people or have relationship with people that are of your blood. So you don't marry your, you know, your, your half-sister. You don't marry your first cousin. That's laws of consanguinity. He's saying stay away from that stuff. Again, it, this will set, it's, it's a taboo. You don't do that around Jewish people. And then the other two that he adds in there both deal with the blood. He says don't eat things that are strangled. Why? That's how my grandmother used to kill chickens. But um, I guess that's breaking the neck more than strangling. But you know what I'm saying? Well, because the Jewish people didn't, they didn't butcher that way. They always slit the throat first and drained it so that there was no residual blood in the meat. And, and anything made of, of blood as a meat product was a no-no. How many have ever had a blood meat product in your life? Show of hands, a few of you. Gross. <laughs> I, I'll never forget when my wife and I were in Germany and, and uh, a friend said, hey, you want to try some blood sausage? And inside I'm like, no, I don't really want to. But I wanted to, you know, play the role of the missionary that, you know, doesn't offend people. So I'm like, sure, serve me some of that. Like, <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> James is saying we don't put roadblocks between the Gentiles and the gospel and in the same way we don't put roadblocks because what we want them to hear is not you're saved by some combination of faith plus these weird four law ideas. No, he's saying we don't want them to miss salvation by faith alone because they get hung up on these things that are just utterly taboo and and gross to them. We've not talked today about the importance of obedience to God's law. There is a place for God's law in the life of the believer. We are still to honor our mother and father um, and so on. And so these things are re-quoted in the New Testament and and they are uh, obligatory to the Christian in the way we live. We haven't talked about any of those and how those things work themselves out once we are saved. But what we've said today, and what I believe is absolutely clear from Scripture, absolutely clear from church history, is that we are saved by the gospel, we are saved by Christ, and it is by grace, it is through faith and faith alone. There's nothing whatsoever that we can add. Any person or system that preaches salvation that rests in whole or part on our work is just uncertain at its best. It's that rope analogy again, and you will find this, that if people have a confused idea of the gospel and of what it is that actually brings justification, if they forever think, okay, I know I need to believe in Christ, but ah, I need to do these other things, or you know, some combination is what's actually saving me, then it's that 10,000-pound it's that rope attached to that thread. And you will never have the certainty of your salvation that you are meant to have as a believer in Christ. 
And if you don't know Christ today, um, if for some reason you just kind of wandered in and you don't know the gospel, or maybe you've come to church a long time and, and, and for whatever reason your, your brain has just been sort of, sort of locked out and you've never really heard it or understood it, this is the gospel that we pro- proclaim to you. It is a gospel which is by grace. It is by grace. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. There's nothing that you or I can bring to the table. And if we try to bring something to the table, then effectively we're denying the very teaching that, that, that Peter brought there. That, that, that Jew and Gentile alike are saved by grace alone. You don't do it. You don't earn it. There's nothing you bring. It has to be by grace. You access the gospel by putting your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, what he did for sinners. And if today, if you look to him and you see in him that savior of the world and your heart is drawn to him, then make that day today. Trust him. Trust him. And you will be saved by faith and faith alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for really clarity that that we have. There are things in your word that are hard to understand and then there are some things that are just written so large that uh, that we can't miss them. And, And again and again throughout this passage, we have seen that it is the gospel as it is proclaimed and believed upon that brings salvation and, and that nothing, whether it's circumcision or works of the law, nothing can be added to that whatsoever. We proclaim that gospel, Lord, not in pride as if we've discovered something great, Lord. We're just, we're just children accepting it from your hands as the truth that you've given us. And so we gladly tell it to anyone who will hear that if we look to Jesus Christ and trust in him, we will be saved. I pray, Lord, that you might do that work even now in someone's heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.